Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015. It's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Mike Johnson. Mike, what's going on, man? What's going on, Dmitry? You went off and became a big star since you had me on last. I didn't know if I was going to get a call back. So uh, good to be good to be with you once again. I don't know about that, but I, I, I what I do know is uh, I went back through the through the archives, and um, the last time you appeared on the show was episode one thirty, uh, which was back mm-hmm. in January twenty seventeen. Um, this is episode two forty, and. Uh, you know, to give you a sense of how long ago that was, um, I was going through the show notes from that, and we had like a spirited debate about whether Kyle Pozo was a deserving all-star. So it has been a long time since we've chatted on this show, so I'm excited to have you back on. Well, what's happening, Kyle Pozo's life since that conversation? I tell you. Yes, yes, it has. And yeah, it's been, I mean, a lot's happened in our lives, a lot's happened in the NHL as a whole. And, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're recording this now between, we're going to post this as soon as we finish, talk, as soon as we finish talking. So hopefully people will listen to it before game four. Uh, we're going to recap the first three games, maybe do a little bit of a preview. And hopefully, uh, I guess, maybe if people listen after game four, well, they'll wonder why we talked about what we did. But uh, the first three games have been really interesting for me. I think there's a, a bunch of different ways we can go about this discussion. I don't know what's been the sort of biggest storyline for you that stuck out through the first three games. Um, well, I mean, I think part of it is the inevitable return to humankind of Mark Andre Fleury. Hmm. Um, you know, I probably thought it would have happened prior to the Stanley cup final, but when you have a goalie who has had a very good year, um, has had lots of winning in his past, but you know he's playing goal at a level that nobody has ever played it before. You have to believe at some point that's going to end. I mean, it's, it's unlikely he's going to be the greatest goaltending performance in the history of the game, and he was on pace to do that basically through three rounds. So I think so much of how people perceived Vegas going into the final, that they were some sort of unstoppable, overwhelming, inevitable winner mm-hmm. had so had so much to do with Marc-Andre Fleury playing at a 947 save yep. percentage. I mean, if you need 40 shots to get two goals, you're going to win just about every game if you have a goaltender playing that well. Now, some of that's defense in front of him and all the other reasons, but 
a lot of it's just their goalie was playing lights out ridiculous. And I, I just wonder how much the perception of Vegas was skewed by their goaltender because had he been at a 925, you know, you're talking about seven, eight, nine more goals he would have let in over the course of the few series that he played, that would be enough to make the difference, especially against Winnipeg in the, in the results. So um, the biggest takeaway early on is, is, is Marc-Andre Fleury not being awful, right. but just not being as great as he has been beforehand because now, now Vegas looks more like a normal team and less like this unstoppable juggernaut. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, if you put it into perspective through the first 15 games in the first uh, three rounds leading up to this series, Flurry had two games with a sub-900 save percentage, and this mm-hmm. series, all three of them have been... that 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 That's the case so far. So you're right. I mean, the 947 save percentage... Um, does wonders for making everything look better and maybe all those conversations we had in the lead up to this series about you know what can other teams glean from what vegas is doing to be so successful are ultimately <laughs> get a well, good goalie a really Dimitri, really hot get goalie a yeah. good goalie yeah and, right. and on the other end of the ice obviously you know Braden holtby has been rock solid especially in game two he was remarkable easily the best player on the ice and he was very solid in game three as well so yeah i mean for all the stuff we want to kind of uh, look at and peel back all the layers for for these games and sort of talk about the X's and O's at the end of the day it's like which which team's goalie is going to make more saves is ultimately probably going to wind up determining who's going to come out on top and so far Holtby's been the better of the two and well I guess we'll see how it goes the rest of the way like regression works in in mysterious ways it's very tough to kind of nail down what's going to happen and obviously Flurry there's some sort of middle ground between how he's looked in these first three games and how he looked in the first couple series. So maybe if we find mm-hmm. a nice little balance there, then maybe this series could shift back in Vegas' favor. Yeah, yeah, I don't think he has to play at the you know at a nine fifty hmm. for Vegas to be successful for Vegas to win. I mean, I think to match Braden Holpe would be just about good enough. But don't you think that Braden Holpe also, for as much love as Mark Andre Fleury was deservedly getting, I think Braden Holpe probably doesn't get enough. Right. When you look at his career numbers in the playoffs, they're amongst the greatest of all time. He's almost played 80 games in the in the playoffs, and I think he's got the second highest save percentage ever. Yeah. yeah. So you know you start talking in those terms, and I think Mark Andre Fleury's down in the 30s as far as all time. So lumped in with everybody else who has not won a cup or got to the third round for for Washington, I think I think Braden Holtby probably is slighted somewhat in. in the expectations how good he has been. Forget about how good he's going to be, but he's just how good he has been over his career. And uh, he's certainly shown in the first few games. And this one, he's been, he's been really good. Well, so one thing I want to talk about you with, um, you know, in terms of Brain Holby's performance is sort of what's going on in front of him. I know we have a difficult time kind of really capturing or quantifying, um, you know, defensive efficiency and sort of what the players in front of the goalie are doing. Usually we just kind of, look at how a team's playing defensively based on how many goals they've given up. But with mm-hmm. the Capitals, a big storyline throughout this entire postseason, I think especially in the series, has been um, sort of this defensive structure they have under Barry Trotz and the 1-1-3 one, one, they're using in the neutral zone. And especially when they go up in some of these games, I, I think they've mm-hmm. been sort of surgical in terms of how they really just put the clamps down. There's obviously you know a few instances in Game 2 where Holtby had to make remarkable saves. But for the most part, I, I think in the third period there, there was a stretch of like, 10 or 11 minutes where Vegas couldn't even muster a shot on goal and that sort of speaks to what's going on in front of him and I don't know is that sort of one of those things where just because Holby's playing so well and because the pucks aren't going in we're making a lot of it or do you think there's something to the fact that the Capitals have actually sort of found this um, nice little balance between obviously all the offensive weapons they have but also just playing a much better defensive game as, as an entire team. 
Uh, no, it's it's both. It's not just Braden Holpe, and and you're right, because we we see it every year. Every team, even really good teams, especially when they get up, if they want to try to play a more defensive posture, as, as Washington has has opted to, they kind of inevitably get hemmed in their own end. Even if they defend well, you know, they get in that mindset: we're just defending, and we're going to chip it out, and then we'll just defend some more. And at some point, that does break down because it's just hard to do. It's hard to do for 10, 15 minutes of a period. But Washington has got a really nice balance where they've got the defensive mindset. And when in trouble, they do occasionally just shoot it away or the high flip into the neutral zone and chase it down. But they also, when they get it, especially their top, top couple lines, they're not afraid to make plays. Mm. I mean, and then they pass it out of their own end. I think that's so important for what Washington is able to do when protecting a lead, not just stopping you know, the other, the rush chances and keeping them outside and making them dump it in and all the other team things that they do to Vegas. But also then once you do win a battle, you do get it back, you got to pass it. you got to pass it to someone. You can't just shoot it away. And I think Washington, the skilled players, are really towing that line nicely where they are committed to defense, which is nice for, for Barry Trotz, yeah. but then are also still using their skill to make good plays, even if those good plays result in just, you know, a possession exit that allow them to kind of comfortably move the puck up the ice for a dump in the other way. I, I think a lot of teams can learn something from that because not all the work just has to go into stopping them from the other team from scoring, but the work has to go into then moving the puck up yourself. So uh, they're doing that uh, very well. And I thought, especially in the second and third game, for the most part, Vegas does really well when they are able to kind of swarm and ball you to the neutral zone. I mean, basically – who can turn the other team over in the neutral zone? Right. And in, and in game one, Vegas did a lot of that against Washington. You know, a lot of catching from behind, a lot of pucks around the blue lines. And that allows Vegas to skate, attack the blue line of themselves, zone entries, possession, and, and then try to create off the rush. Because every player, no matter how good of a guy you are down low, it's easier to create offense off the rush. If you give me a three-on-two or a two-on-two, just a little bit more time and space. And uh, Vegas did a good job in the first game. I think that's really what's changed in that Wash has managed their neutral zone better in that they're not turning it over anymore. They're actually clogging it up on Vegas, and Vegas doesn't really get much off the rush. Mm. And, and, and forget about chances, but even just possessions. They're forced mm. to dump it in way more than they want to, especially their top guys. You look at why maybe Marcia So and Carlson and, and Riley Smith, their first line, haven't been quite as good as Vegas wants them to be. I think because they got to shoot it in a lot. And even for players as good as that who can get stuff done off the cycle, you don't want to shoot it in. You want to skate it in. And they haven't been able to do it as much as they want. Yeah, no, that's true. I remember um, when I was previewing the series with, with our buddy Andrew Berkshire, um, mm-hmm. before it started, he was making the note of, you know, we were talking about the Vegas forecheck and sort of how they'd given teams fits, especially Winnipeg in their, in their Western Conference final, which was surprising based on the caliber of defenseman uh, Winnipeg had. And he was making the note that, Maybe the sort of the antidote of that for Washington would be what they'd done all postseason, which was having guys like Kuznetsov and Backstrom and Lars Eller kind of come back in their own zone and help with those breakouts themselves and maybe provide different avenues for him to get it out as opposed to just giving the puck to the defenseman behind the net and hoping he makes a play. And we've seen a lot of that in this series, and you're right. I think that uh, the fact that Vegas has struggled to create a lot of offense at 5-on-5, unless their fourth line has been on the ice uh, against all <laughs> odds, um, has been the fact that they haven't been able to turn as much of that uh, defense into offense and get a lot of those easy opportunities. And, you know, for the Capitals, if you just look at 
the first three games as a whole, um, you know, Vegas has got the better of the play in terms of 5-1-5 as a kind of raw number. But then when you actually kind of slice it and dice it a little bit and look at the high danger stuff and what's happening around the net, Washington, much has been the case for this entire postseason, has done much better in that regard. And I, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where over the long haul, um, you want to see those possession numbers kind of slanted more in their favor. But in a series this short, they've clearly stumbled upon something that's working for them there. And I'm going to be fascinated to see whether uh, that trend continues here because we've only really seen three games so far, so you don't want to make too mm-hmm. much of it. But there's certainly trends that are starting to kind of manifest themselves. Well, they are. And I think the probably the greatest one to Washington's credit for three games anyways is that the greatest asset that everyone proclaimed that Vegas had on everyone, including Winnipeg, was speed, right? That they play fast. Like Not only do they skate fast, but they play fast and they yeah. pressure fast and, and they move it fast. And Washington's got a lot of swift skaters, but I wouldn't look at the actual individuals, maybe take away Chandler Stevenson, Kuznetsov, Tom Wilson. Like There's not a ton of just fast skating Washington Capitals. Mm-hmm. But I watched the game, and I don't see a real difference in team speed. And I think that's a credit to Washington. Because if one person tells me that Vegas needs to try harder or want it more, I'm going to pull my hair out. Uh, I'm like, we're in the final here. I'm sure they're trying as hard as they can. I, I don't so, think yeah. they don't. I don't think they don't want it. And does that mean every time someone loses, the other team wanted it more? Can you never not want it more and actually lose as well? But anyways, um, but I think that's what's happened. I think Washington has made Vegas play at their pace, or they've, they've negated that all that all that speed that everyone had trouble with. Uh, especially the speed to check um, by by how they're managing the puck and the plays they're making and how they're turning over Vegas themselves. So uh, Barry Trotz has them playing well. I I, I give the Caps uh, most of the credit for that. Mm. So okay. So if you're coaching or if you're playing or if you're advising this Vegas team, like what's mm-hmm. what's sort of the counter punch to that? Like how 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 do you change the sort of the pace this game's being played at and sort of the terms that that they're going at at 5-1-5 like is there certain stuff as opposed to just you know have the puck more often like is there certain uh, little wrinkles you could throw in to change that up that would actually swing it back in their favor uh, that, that, that's the question isn't it and that's, that's, the that's one why Gerard Glantz being paid the big bucks yeah, yeah. That's, that's why he's going to win coach of the year because he's supposed to be able to find the answer to this one right um, yeah I mean I, I think probably uh, a couple things um, you know you may have to take a, a bit of a page out of the fourth line, especially early on in games, and in, in, in willingness to kind of put it in and go get it and do a better job of putting it into the spaces to make the Washington defenders work. Now, mm-hmm. I know it's very boring to say you want to dump it in away from the goaltender, but I think Braden Holtby, despite his gaffe against Noshik, has done a nice job in the last in games two and three of negating um, some of the dump-ins and being able to move it efficiently to a good spot. And and Vegas kind of ends up chasing it. So I think if they can do that a little bit better, because I think Dmitry Olaf's a good player. Niskin is an excellent player. Mm-hmm. Carlson can pass it well when he has time. And Michael Kempney, for some strange reason, has been like a godsend for Washington, which no one would have thought would have happened. But like, I still want to pressure Juice and Orpik and Kempney and try to make them make decisions uh, for sure. Uh, I think that would be part of it. And the other part of it is, um, I think when Vegas is at their best, their neutral zone puck pursuit angling hmm. is is awesome. 
Right. And you watch that first game, and how many times did Kuznetsov or Ovechkin try to skate through the neutral zone, and not only were they being defended by whoever, McNabb or Schmidt or whoever, but then there was also a forward stick or two forward sticks poking in at them as well. I think that idea of getting more bodies in and around the puck, especially for the best players of Washington, has to be a point of focus. Because if you give Kuznetsov, Backstrom, kind of a bit of a one-on-one situation, even if it's a good gapped-up one-on-one and everything else, they make plays happen because they're that good. That's, that's why they're that good. I think they got to keep, like they did in game one, getting more sticks and bodies in and around the puck, especially through the neutral zone, to try to create the turnovers because that's where the speed matters. For, for Vegas, if they can get a turnover, if they can force Washington to mishandle it in the neutral zone, um, then they can turn it up. They can catch them with their legs and, and, and get those rush attacks that, that they want so much. But it all starts with tighter, more efficient neutral zone play, mm, yeah. um, which is not very much fun to hear as a player. I'm like, if I'm a player, I'm like, what? I got to, I, I got to be better in the neutral zone. That's what you're telling me to do. But I think that's that will cue their their counterattack game. And if we look back, Dimitri, also, game one, I was there, fun, awesome atmosphere. Right. Ice was unbelievably bad. Hmm. Like, very bad. And the idea that, well, bad if the ice was better, there'd be way more offense, I kind of looked at the other way. I think the bad ice contributed to the offense because all the skilled players couldn't make plays. They had to take extra amount of time to settle the puck down or flag it down or trap it. And by then, the checking was there. So I think the reason there were so many turnovers in Game 1 and so much offense available is because everyone was fighting the puck, not because the ice was nice and flat to make pretty plays, but because the players who had it had trouble with it. And I think as the ice has gotten better in Game 2, it was better. Game 3, it appeared to be better. Um, I think that lends itself to um, more crisp play in the neutral zone, which hurts Vegas. I think the, the scratchier it can get in the neutral zone, the mm. better off Vegas can be. And I think the ice contributed to that in game one. Yeah, yeah, I know for sure. Well, you're right. I mean, obviously, uh, neutral zone play might not necessarily be the sexiest topic of discussion, but I think for Vegas, like they, it really has been their bread and butter all year, but especially this postseason. And if you're Gerard Glenn, it's kind of easy to sort of point to that. And there's a lot of evidence to be like, yeah, we need to get back to playing this certain way because it clearly made us very effective. So maybe that's a an easier selling point for him than it would be for other teams. The only challenge, though, is when you watch Wash play and they play well, mm-hmm. and you touched on it earlier, their best players, their three centermen, yep. Eller, Backstrom, Kuznetsov. They do a really good job of busting up good forechecks yeah. because they get down so low, so they're not like hanging out even above the hash marks in like that little pocket. Like they're down on the goal line, they're down below, the, they're down below the goal, and when they could take a two-foot pass or they can take a loose puck and pull it out of a pile and kind of single-handedly skate it up and out of trouble, and then have enough pace to their game that they can catch their forwards and make a play on transition. Hmm. That's tough to defend. Like I'm in there forechecking. I'm right on top of the puck. Kuznetsov pulls a, does a little pirouette spin, three strides, and now I'm chasing him, and I can't catch him. And now all the structure in our neutral zone is kind of gone because you know we're in pursuit. That's hard to defend. That's hard to system against. And and, and all three guys. And Nick Backstrom doesn't really play very fast anymore, but right. fast enough, smart enough, and Kuznetsov and Eller, who has you know discovered the you know his game at the NHL level this playoff it seems. Um, they can they can break up a whole bunch of good plays just because they get so low 
in their own end and then skate the puck nicely out of trouble all the way up the ice to make something happen, it's, it's tough. You can do everything right and then still not, not, get, not come up with the puck. Yeah, no, you're right. And it's all obviously relative. Like even Baxter, who's not necessarily at 100%, like his skill level and ability to create a play on that breakout compared to your average mm-hmm. defenseman is obviously uh, way higher. And I know oh, you're right. I mean, it's just a unique problem for Vegas to deal with. Not many teams have the chess pieces to pull that off. But I mean, it's remarkable watching some of these games. You know, you see it a lot when teams are on power plays, when one of their top forwards is deep in the zone and then he's skating it out and making a play through the neutral zone. But with Kuznetsov, it feels like every time I'm looking, he's like kind of at his own down low in the circle, just making a yep. play and then skating it out. And you rarely ever see that from from opposing forwards. So, yeah, I mean, it'll be fascinating to see what uh, what Vegas does to counteract that. Um, MJ, let's take a quick break here to hear from a sponsor. And then there's a few other things I want to hit before uh, we get out of here. Let's chat a bit about today's sponsor, the Hockey Pudio Cast, Indochino. Indochino is the world's largest made-to-measure menswear company. They make suits and shirts made to your exact measurements for a great fit. Um, the thing that I love most about Indochino, having used them for months now myself, is how personalized it is. Um, you know, people love their wide selection of high-quality fabrics and, you know, the option to include all these details uh, with the actual suit itself, whether it's the lapel, the lining, uh, monogram, you have it. But there's also the aspect of just sort of how personalized it is to cater to your needs um, if you're fortunate enough to be able to actually go visit a showroom in person. Um, You know, you go in there, you hang out, they really um, emphasize the customer uh, service experience and making sure that, you know, you're super comfortable because I know for, for certain people shopping can be a stressful time and you sort of stay away from doing it as a result, but you don't need to because with Indochino, um, they really make that entire process as effortless and actually um, as fun as possible. Um, so here's how it works. You visit a showroom and you basically pick your fabric, you choose your customizations, uh, you know, they get your measurements down and then you basically wait for your custom suit to arrive in just a couple of weeks. It's really that simple. And if you're, you know, not near a showroom or if you uh, are so busy during the day that you can't make it work time wise, um, you can also just go shop online at Indochino.com and submit all those uh, facts about yourself for your suit uh, yourself. And similarly, they'll send you the suit in a couple of weeks. Um, and here's the best deal. This week, my listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $379 at Indochino.com when entering PDO at checkout. That's $50 off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit, plus shipping's free. That's Indochino.com, promo code PDO for any premium suit for just $379 and free shipping. Um, And this is a great time of year to take advantage of this deal, obviously, with uh, it being wedding season. But really, I mean... You don't really need an excuse to look and feel your best. So just go to Nogino and let us let them know that the PDO cast sent you and you're set. Now let's get back to Mike Johnson. Okay. Um the other thing that I find fascinating is, you know, leading up to this series, I was looking at the line matching and how um both the defense pairings and the forward lines would be deployed. And one thing that I think has been fascinating as it's gone on has been what Barry Trotz has done to get Ovechkin and now Kuznetsov that he's back. Um, away from that matchup against Vegas' top line. Now, obviously, you know, pretty much whenever Ovechkin's come across the boards, he's, she- he's seen Nate Schmidt and Braden McNabb, and it'll be tough to, mm-hmm. to get away from that matchup. But as these games have gone on, uh, a smaller percentage of the time 
Ovechkin has spent against William Carlson and Jonathan Marchessault and Riley Smith. And I think that's for the better because that's meant a lot of backs from Oshie and Rana against those guys. And I think that's been the big story here. You know, obviously Ovechkin scoring goals is awesome and all the excitement you see from that. But at the end of the day, I think that the best players really have been, I mean, Oshie has just been a a wrecking ball. Like you just watch what he's doing. It seems like he's always been around the puck kind of that functional physicality where he's been using his body to actually create possession changes and stuff like that. And I mean, it's, I think that has been sort of the big key here where, you know, we want to talk about the top guys and who's getting the better of that. And obviously Vegas's top line needs to score some goals, but at the end of the day, the supporting players for Washington with that second line have really stuck out and, and just dominated yeah. that matchup uh, regardless of who they've been playing against. Yeah, and I think it's worth revisiting, uh, you know, the, the perception of Nick Backstrom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're right, T.J. Oshie has been amazing. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, just, you're right, around the pucks, in front of the nets, along the walls. Um, you know, he's very strong in those puck areas. Not blessed being the fastest. We know he's got great hands, but he's not the fastest, but he's just got that lower center of gravity that he comes up with a lot of pucks, and, and he's been terrific. Vrana, who can really skate, and adds a nice element, especially when they're playing against Carlson, because he just adds speed to the puck pursuit and to the defensive side of the game, even if he's not quite as savvy with it yet as his line mates. But Nick Backstrom, who deservedly is considered one of the all-time best passers ever, one of the all-time best power play quarterbacks ever, um, he's an amazingly efficient two-way centerman. And because he's played with Ovechkin so long, and because they haven't won, I think the idea is that somehow he's he's part of that lumped-in disappointment of the playoffs. And of course he is, but he, he's in a, I don't want to think like all Swedish centermen, but like he such a smart defensive player, hmm. and that he just understands how to how to negate other teams' good players, and the fact that he can go up against Carlson and Marshall and Smith, who by so many metrics are were one of the best five on five lines this year and even through the first few rounds of the playoffs and kind of not erase them but make them pretty quiet especially outside that first game um that's nick backstrom he's just he's just so smart out there where he puts his body where he puts the puck uh where he knows where everyone else is and you're you're right so that second line for washington has had a huge impact They've, they've been they've been great defensively, yep. chipped in a little bit offensively as well, stressing the power play. And then you contrast that second line for Vegas, where they have a couple of their veteran guys, Perron, Neal, and, and Eric Holla, who had 29 goals this year. And we know James Neal picked a nice puck out of the air and sniped one, as he does. But David Perron's got no goals in the playoffs. Eric Holla has not certainly scored at the pace he did during the regular season. And if top lines kind of get washed out and they get so much attention paid to them, you need somebody else, and it can't just be the fourth line, which has been a nice surprise for Vegas, but that's not really sustainable. <laughs> yeah, um, so if you're looking who's got it, if Vegas going to win the cup, they need way, way more out of that second line, way yeah. more. No, you're right. I mean, I wonder if, you know, if Backstrom was from uh, from Ontario or something like that, how we'd be talking yeah. about him and some of the stories you'd be reading because, I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. like – you know, he scores a goal or his line scores, like he's going down and he's 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 celebrating with the team by by like 
you know, tapping gloves with his offhand. And after the yeah. celebration when they beat uh, Tampa Bay, he's shaking hands with her. Like, like he's clearly very, very banged up, but it hasn't really affected his efficiency on the ice. Maybe it has in terms of the puck handling, but just in terms of the, those defensive responsibilities, as you mentioned, and sort of just positional awareness and sort of doing yeah. all those little things that add up. Uh, he's been remarkable and yeah i mean that second line that you mentioned there with with neil and perron and and tuck and 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 Halla and all those guys that they've been alternating there they've been outscored 4-1 at 5-1-5 in the series and mm-hmm. that's kind of yeah in, in a series this tight where there's so little wiggle room and so little margin for error that all odds up especially when you're going you know we talk a lot about forward matching and how these lines are going but i think it's mm-hmm. more so more important against sort of the defense pairings right because that's where you're going to get Listen, whoever gets more picked yeah. in juice, yeah. you have they got to make something happen. Like yeah. they, they have to, they have to be in the offensive zone, right? Yeah. Like I know Brooks Orbeck's having a, a renaissance loving with a lot of people for you know. Admittedly, he's a tough player and he's pr- pretty good at killing penalties. And I know he scored the f- first goal in 220 games or something like that. Yeah. Um, he still doesn't move it very well out of his own end. Mm-hmm. He he still has trouble playing one on ones with speed. Uh, and Juice, I think, can skate a bit better. He's he, there are moments when he looks like he's young and he's you know he's uncertain of of the moment and and how to play. So if you're whether you're Halla and Neil and Perron, whether you're Cody Eakin and Tuck and and Carpenter, whoever it is, like they, they got to try to find a way to dig in against that matchup because you're right. The forwards, especially in this series, when everyone can skate. And everyone, of course, is committed to playing defense and being as hard as they can. Um, the difference really is in how skilled the defensemen are that you're going up against. And so, if you're, you know, if you're going to get Orloff and Niskanen, it's going to be a tough matchup. Those guys are really good. Yeah. Like they're really good at playing defense and stopping you from doing what you want to do. They're much better than the third pair guys, and, and that's who you have to try to take advantage of. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's remarkable. I think if you told Vegas heading into the series, like, yeah, your fourth line is going to generate three goals in 25 minutes, you're going to be like, okay, <laughs> awesome, that's cool. And then you'd be like, unfortunately, the the trade-off is your top line will have two goals in 45 minutes. They'd be like, oh, crap, we're oh, we're going to be in yeah. trouble. And, yeah, I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, though, it is one of those things where as much as we say, like, yeah, that second line is going to have to be better and they're going to have to do all this stuff, like, they still rely on that top line quite a bit and they're going to need more from them. I think the, the generating two goals at five on five so far through three games mm-hmm. is just not enough for them to to get by in this series and they're going to need a bit more from them for that um and yeah in terms of the defense pairings uh i want to talk a bit about shay theodore because uh you know he was a big story coming out of game three obviously he had a couple blunders there and especially mm-hmm. the Devonte smith pelly goal that kind of put that game away uh he got a lot of flack for that and i, I know that you know i've been talking him up all postseason and after game, i think he's pretty good he's awesome like but- like I, like I know he like what like he he mishandled the puck, yeah. which maybe it's appropriate because Devonte Smith probably mishandled one to him in Game mm-hmm. One that resulted in a goal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's back and forth they go. But when I watch Shea Theodore, and I, you know I haven't heard everything you said about him, despite being a very faithful listener, of course. Mm. Um, but like the way he like to me, he he defends like better than Nate Schmidt, the blue line, right. which I don't all the numbers bear that out. But the fact that like he his gap is so tight. He plays with so much confidence moving up in the play, and where most guys will meet the player, even if they're good at what five feet outside the blue line, a really good defenseman. Yep. I I see Shea Theodore meeting guys, 
you know, halfway between the red and the blue, like 15, 18, 20 feet outside the blue line. He's gapping up and taking one-on-ones there, which is the worst place to get met as a forward. You don't want anything to do with a guy challenging you there because that turnover is, it could be a breakaway. So uh, the way he defends with his legs, getting up, closing gaps, I love his modern era physicality, which means he doesn't really hit people, right? but, but he's physical with his stick. You know, he checks through the hands. He's strong with his legs through the stick, not necessarily through the body, but skating through sticks and protecting it and, and getting possession that way. And I think he's a great passer. I mean, he can move the puck up the ice pretty well. Um, again, I don't have it in front of me, his, his zone exit percentage, but it feels like he does a nice job of that. And then the stuff in the offensive zone, that's almost expected to me. Like the plays he made on the no-shit goal. Like, that's what I expect a first-round defenseman to be, kind of be able to do. That's why he was drafted. Like you give him time, you give him space, he makes really nice plays. But it's the other stuff without the puck that I've been really impressed with, how well he uses his legs to defend, especially. He's, I, I know he had a tough game because every mistake is, is highlighted and, and is, is of such great importance that it's, it's tough to look past that. But on, on a whole, I think he's I think he's been very good in the playoffs and he's been really pretty good in the series as well. Yeah. Yeah, I know those those a couple of those obvious ones that you can kind of point to and I after game 1 I tweeted like it's funny you mentioned that cuz after game 1 I tweeted uh you know, Shea Theodore just does everything well. Like it's like your your modern day defenseman where it's not just uh, he's going to put up the point totals and people will focus on the offensive stuff, but I think the defensive efficiency is there as well and then Cavs fans after game 3 were finding that tweet and <laughs> tweeting it on and going like, oh well not tonight and yeah no you're, you're gonna get some of that but you don't want to focus too much on, on just but, the one but game you know and, what to me th- yeah. and i wonder this is a legitimate question i don't know the answer i'll ask you mm. like so you could have shea theodore who makes you know so many good plays throughout a game for yeah. example and because he makes all those plays occasionally they don't work out well I'm not even talking about the smith pally one because that one it just the puck stocky overskated it it happens the same reason lars eller couldn't put a tap in in, in the in the first game like you miss sometimes is it better in a playoff Stanley Cup final to be that guy or to be Brooks Orpik, who just, you know, not to pick on Brooks, but like who would likely just shoot it out, not make a mistake, but really not make a play either. And, and I mean, my take as a player, as a, I'm like, I always want the guy who's going to make the play. Hmm. Occasionally you have to make the smart, dumb play or, you know, the smart, safe play. And that's being a, a heady player to know the difference. Like, we're two minutes left here. I don't need to make a nice crisp pass up the middle. I just need to get over the blue line. But even over seven games, you think the numbers would add up. If you make enough good plays, your team should probably come out ahead. But it's funny how perception is because it's not really about how many good plays, even if they're subtle ones, guys make. It's just about avoiding how many bad plays right. you may make. And only bad plays are result in goals because nobody cares about bad plays. I just give up chances, apparently. So it's just it's, uh, you wonder coaches, management, when they evaluate these things, do they appreciate the volume of, of good stuff versus and like how it turns into better play? Or is it just, we like the safe guy because he hits people and he shoots it out? I wonder. Well, based on the hockey people I know, I, I would say they probably favor the conservative uh, option there, I'd, I'd imagine. But yeah, no, you're right. I mean, in a, in a, in a short series like this, obviously... Like we know 80 games, like, yeah. obviously, right. that's a big enough where you... I, I, I'll take mistakes all day long because i got 80 games to, that the... The, the volume of good outweighs the bad. The numbers have a long enough chance to even themselves out. Um, but in seven games? 
you know, it's not, it's not quite as easy a question, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I'd say, you know, game three mistakes notwithstanding, um, for a guy who has as much puck moving ability and an offensive skill as Theodore does, I don't really think he makes as many uh, of those glaring mistakes as some of his other peers do that would I would lump in a similar sort of skill set. So I, I think mm-hmm. that'll be fine. If anything, I'd go the other way. Like I, I like in a series this tight where Vegas has clearly struggled to generate offense, especially with their top guys on the ice. Like an interesting wrinkle that they've done this postseason at times in really short spurts has been putting Schmidt and Theodore on the ice at the same time with their top guys mm-hmm. and really just kind of throwing a fastball at the other team and just hoping to either catch them off guard or just have like one 90 second shift in the offensive zone with sustained pressure and hopefully that kind of snowballs into more and more chances for for the rest of the guys in the team so i'd yep. like to see maybe even a bit more of that because they clearly need to do something here to throw the capitals for a bit of a loop and maybe just change the way this game is being defended so i i'd, I'd be i'd be fascinated for that but you know what speak one last thing on theodore you were talking about his uh his zone entry denials and some of his aggressiveness there and kind of the contemporary stick work he does like the best compliment i can give him is tracking some of these games he puts me in a weird spot where i don't even know whether to mark it as uh, a failed zone entry because it's so far into the neutral zone that he stopped mm-hmm. the rush that it's like this might be more of a neutral zone play but at the same time uh you know, by the letter of the law, but at the same time, just theoretically, like the other team was clearly going to try to get it into the zone and he just stopped it before they even had a chance of doing so. So I think, you know, he's labeled as the goat after game three, but I still love Shea Theodore and I just wanted cooler heads to prevail here a bit because I saw people really slander him quite a bit after that performance. I thought he's, I thought he's been really good and mm-hmm. I'm a big, big fan. So I'm with you. Um, okay. Is there anything else uh, in this series heading looking ahead to game four and and the games going back to Vegas that we should be looking at or talking about. I mean, we've talked about sort of the top guys. We talked about defense pairings, the goaltending. Like, is there anything else here? Mm -hmm. Um, I I mean, we talk so much about um, the power play queuing up Ovechkin and Kuznetsov's game. Mm -hmm. Is there anything to the power play helping out Marshall, Riley Smith, and Carlson as well? Mm. Um, You know, even though it's it's an intangible thing. The confidence and comfort you can get from picking up a point on the power play or even picking up good touches and chances can bleed over. And um, I know they've gotten a couple of power play goals, you know, Theodore Rister through Tuck and stuff, and, uh, but they haven't had a lot of confidence-inducing moments on the power play. We'll say that. Yep. And, and, I, and I wonder if that can help um, the top guys for Vegas as well kind of find their stride again. Um, I think that might be something to look at for sure. Uh, and then I also, I wonder, we know Gerard Gallant, he loves to roll four lines, right? And I mm-hmm. guess when your four line is, fourth line has got some big goals, <laughs> you're rewarded. You wonder if he gets away from that or, you know, shortens it up or looks to different matchups, just kind of and get away from something they've done most of the year, which is just say, here's our guys, we trust them all, they're all going to go play. And... Especially on the road in Game Four, does he jump them around? Does he try to, you know, find Carlson out there against different players, uh, matchups, defensive pairs? I just wonder if Gerard Gallant gets a little bit more creative behind the bench. Mm. Well, in this series, which which has been their fourth line? I can't even I, I can't even tell. The line with Ryan Reeves has been the top most effective unit. <laughs> yeah, it it has it has. I mean, oh, somebody asked me the other day though, does this mean there's going to be a comeback for? Ryan Reeves kind of players, and I'm like, well, 
Ryan Reeves is a bit unique in the sense that, yeah, we know he can fight, and he's, he's super, super tough in that regard, mm-hmm. and he'll stick up for his teammates. But for a guy who's as big as he is, he skates pretty well. Like, he gets in and around the puck fast enough so that he can use that big frame to, to do good things with it. Um, and they know so much of these games for the skill guys is about trying to create difficult zone entries, trying to create turnovers. And some of the simplicity that that fourth line plays with, because they're, they're not ever going to turn the puck over. Because as soon as they get pressure, they're just going to shoot it in. And something in a short three games we've seen so far burst, the willingness to just give it away and go get it, as opposed to risking a turnover, mm. probably has helped them through the first couple of games that they haven't had to, 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 to worry about navigating the neutral zone because they just kind of get it and shoot it in. They've been physical, and because no check score, but an empty net goal, a brilliant play by Theodore, and the Ryan Reeves cross-check play from behind the net. Mm. Yeah. When, but when I hear Ryan Reeves, I mean, he hadn't scored in two months before the, the, the series winner against Winnipeg. Noshek had never scored two goals in a game in his life. Like, it's probably, and I hope not for their sake, they'll have a great series, but it's probably more likely that they, they won't score again right. than that they will. Yeah. I mean, that's just given the kind of players they are. So they have been effective. They have been in the offensive zone. They have been physical. Even when they do all those things, it's still kind of unlikely they're going to score because they're just not goal-scoring players. Oh, this is going to be awesome when people listen to this tomorrow and they have oh. like a hat, hit a hat trick. <laughs> he comes off his first ever four-goal game. <laughs> That's what I hope he does. He's one of the best guys, best interviews out there, but... Um, you know, when you start going two months of the regular season without scoring, that's uh, that's a prolonged drought. Yeah. That, uh you got to put something, some stock behind. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, yeah, Joe, I, I just want to make one point about the. Uh, you mentioned the power play there uh, a couple minutes ago, and and you're right. I don't want to be sort of that you know talking head guy talking about momentum and and all this stuff, but it does. In these playoff series, there's these little moments where it does feel like stuff does swing a little bit, and you look back at it and you can kind of lament missed opportunities. And that game two, five on three, there, five uh, on three in the third period, yeah. like it's one of those things where I believe they were what down just the one goal at the time, and they were up one nothing in the series, obviously. And it's one of those things where if they make the most out of that and either score one goal or maybe even two down the line, like all of a sudden, like this series, the complexion of it changes so much, right? And it's that there's a bunch of these like high leverage moments in in these series with with all the spotlight on them and that was one of those that clearly um either went which way you want to look at it went in Washington's favor or or Vegas kind of uh blundered and at the end of the day yeah if things don't go their way they're gonna really wind up looking back at that one and kind of kicking themselves but fortunately we're through only three games here so as bad as it's looked for Vegas lately and as good as it's looked for Washington like this stuff can swing really quickly yeah yeah, they're one win away in game four for being Going home three time, game yeah. series, two games at home where they've only lost a couple of games. So yep. absolutely. But can you imagine, Mitri, what the reaction would have been if Washington's five guys went out there for a minute, 15, five on three and didn't get it done? Yeah. I mean, or, and also reaction because what would your expectation level be that they would score in a five on three for a minute 10? Like, I would probably think that they would score 60% of the time. Mm. If they have that much time. And those guys, and they certainly would at least generate some pretty good looks. Right. And that was probably the more disappointing part for Vegas in that moment. That they, like, Hopi, I think he made one save. It was like an arrister from an angle from Marsha, so not even a very, you know, dangerous shot. So, yeah, that, that's, that's true. But then you think about it. So, 
it seems like everything's going Washington's favor. Hopi is playing great. Flurry's not playing well. We're what? And an insane Hopi save away from being an overtime in game two. And, you know, even game three was a pretty tight game when Vegas probably admittedly didn't play their best. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I think the series is still far from over. Yeah, yeah, there's going to be many of those uh, high leverage moments yet to come. And hopefully a lot of them don't involve, you know, controversy with refereeing and stuff. I'm really proud of us. We we went like 40 plus minutes here without talking uh, about I, I think it's been since game one, it's been much better for the most part. Like that game one, there was a lot of stuff. To game one was, game one was, I mean, and I sat beside an official on the plane on the way home from Vegas. Mm, and, um, had a great long chat and like interesting, interesting stuff. And, um, but he did not referee in game one, but I just, I didn't like game one. Yeah. And then, and the idea that I, I get the mentality, right? You get the referees don't want to be part of the story. They don't want to decide the game. They want to let the players decide the game. But if you're on a team that is really good in the power play by not calling penalties, you are effectively deciding the game. Yes. You're not letting the players decide the game because we have players that are good on the power play. And I think the idea that we'll just let the boys play and they'll sort it out and we'll just get out of the way, like that's not, that's not how it's supposed to be called and that's not really being impartial because, in fact, that probably favors Vegas more than Washington. So uh, I think the second and third games have been better in that way. It's tough. We know things move fast. I can talk about the T.J. Oshie shove on Colin Miller, which I think, you know, Miller just laid down to try to get a penalty. He did. We can mm-hmm. talk about when are we going to institute review for self-inflicted or teammate-inflicted high sticks. Right. Like, let's do it next year. Because they're not hard. It takes 10 seconds. And let's not put Brooks Orpik in the box when James Neal thumbs himself in his face. Yeah. I mean, there are things we can do quickly. But generally speaking, you're right. I think games two and three, they've been pretty good. I like the smith Pelly call and the goalie interference on Marc-Andre Fleury. Absolutely correct. I don't think it was even dirty, but he certainly went there and clipped them pretty hard. Right. I think they've done a pretty good job. It's hard, as fast as it is, to get it perfect. Yeah, I didn't want to open this can of worms. I could go like forty-five minutes on. Yeah, no, sorry, that'll this, be next time. This idea of <laughs> uh, like letting the guys play—it's like, what's what's the point of having the eighty-two game regular season and then the first couple rounds of the playoffs when you get late into the season here and all of a sudden, like it's you're just a completely different sport being played or the idea that game you know, you changes. Can, it's, yeah, it's a different game. Yeah. Like what all the stuff that we worked on that was effective in this set of rules—you're just going to change the rules. Yeah. Yeah, remember yeah, all the stuff you did very effectively that got you to this point? Okay, let's scrap all that and let's just play <laughs> yeah. prison rules. Yeah. Let's just go rugby style. Yeah. Exactly. All right, MJ. Well, I'm glad we finally got to do this. Uh, it. Let's not let another year and a half or so pass before the, the next appearance of Mike well, Johnson. That's on you. You know I'm guys. always around. I know you have a busy lineup of people that want to mm-hmm. be on, me included. So whenever you're ready, you know where to find me. All right, that was a blast, man. We'll talk soon. All right, cheers. The cheers. Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast. Mm-hmm.